Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we ask you to come before us this morning, that you would be with Stephen as he brings the word to us, that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and our ears to hear the word preached. We pray that you would give Stephen boldness and clarity of mind as he opens and explains the word to us. We ask these things in the name of your great Son, in Christ our Lord, amen. get all my stuff together here, sorry. <laughs> I'm not as slick at this as David is. Well, good morning. It is good to be in the pulpit once again. It has been a while. This morning, I will be preaching from 1 Peter chapter 1, and the title of the sermon you will see was not very creative. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I take that directly from verse 2. <clears throat> Before I get started, when I was asked to preach, I don't know, four or five years ago for the first time in, in a long time, I had no intention of preaching through a series. Um, it was a local church, needed some help, so I agreed and preached uh, from a, a familiar passage in First Peter. I just plopped down in the middle of chapter 1. It was good. It was a great principle for the time, for the church that I was preaching at. And then other opportunities arose. So Pastor David prompted me, why don't you just practice expository preaching and go through the books? So I took off from there, and now nine sermons later, I still haven't preached the introduction to First Peter. So I guess now's as good a time as any to start at the beginning. So as we talk about Peter in his first epistle, we can remember that Pastor David a few weeks ago introduced uh, the, the Gospel of Mark, which is very interesting because Mark and Peter were closely tied together. Peter was sort of a spiritual father to Mark. Uh, these brothers were both brothers who... Uh, who struggled at times with speaking out of turn, I guess you could say, uh, with, with uh, being a little too quick to talk. Um, I, I don't know if any of us can relate to that or not, but you know, pretty sure, pretty sure I can. Simon Peter was a common man. He, he was just a regular guy. He was a fisherman. And when, when Christ called him, he, he was tending his nets after a night of hard fishing. He didn't catch anything. So the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, it records that he was mending his nets. And Jesus came along and was teaching the crowd. And he got into his boat and, and pushed a little way from the shore. Of course, Peter and James and John heard all these things. And they went out in the boat with him after that. And, and Jesus said, let down your nets. And they thought, well, fishing all night right here. 
I hadn't caught anything. But they, they let their, their nets down, and they caught a catch that was too big for two boats to haul in. Immediately, Peter, James, and John left their nets and followed Jesus. They heeded the call of Christ. Simon was his name, but Jesus called him Petros, or Peter, meaning rock. Peter's faith in God would cause him to be used significantly in spite of his failures. And, and we can think about the many ways that, that the, the Bible records Peter failing. I mean, he, he, was, he, was caught, he was told to get behind me, Satan, when he rebuked our Lord, when our Lord was talking about his crucifixion. On the night when, when Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied him three times publicly. Can you imagine the guy that Peter was, the alpha male, the one that wants to be out front? Him understanding at that point when that rooster crowed how mightily he had failed and how, how true God's word was. And how God told him you were going to do this, and he said, not me, not me. Oh, yeah, you. Peter could have given up real easily. Peter could have been the guy that said, Satan, you're right. I am worthless. I am not worthy of this. But he didn't. And it's a good thing that Peter didn't dwell on those failures. We can be of good cheer because we know that our God is a God of redemption. And the Lord went on to use Peter in a mighty way to build his church. Peter's a great example of perseverance, continuing to love the Lord and to strive after the things that the Lord has called him to. And in this letter, we find a message of hope. One thing I really appreciate about Peter's writing is it's real. He, he talks about the hope in Christ. He talks about all the wonderful promises in his word. But he keeps it real. He, he talks about the, the hardships that come along with it as well. In almost every paragraph of this letter, we can find the sovereignty, of, the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. Peter constantly reminds us of that. He paints a picture of salvation through Christ that is beautiful. And he points the reader in almost every paragraph back to Christ. He reminds us of the challenges that come along with following Christ. Peter warns of the trials and the sufferings that come along with being Christ-like. He reminds us over and over of the suffering of Christ, always pointing the reader back to that glorious heavenly reward. Remember that this letter was written to a specific group of people, but those people were in a similar situation to us. As, as I read through this letter, and the, the words just jump off the page to me, and, I, and I'm amazed that, that people still read the Bible and believe the easy believism and the prosperity preaching that has so invaded our culture. It's just not there in this book. Peter completely refutes all of those things. This is the true gospel. And we should read this as, as a letter of instruction for our life. 
we are, in a sense, exiles in the dispersion. Look around if you don't believe me. Turn to 1 Peter with me, if you're not already there. And we'll read verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we see that Peter begins this letter by claiming the apostolic authority. So what? Why does that matter? Anybody could say, I'm Peter, and I'm going to write you a letter, and I'm going to talk about things that I know to be true or that I believe, um, just what I've heard. No, no, Peter says, I'm coming from Christ. Christ sent me here. Christ taught me. He sent me, and he even gave me the name Peter. So that is the reason why I'm here to talk to you. There's the reason why I'm writing you this letter. It's because God sent me. Jesus Christ sent me. I am his apostle, and it's on his authority that I come to teach you. And we know that an apostle is more than an officer in the church. He, he was an ambassador to all the churches. The apostles planted the churches. They trained the next generation of elders and church officers. They checked on the churches to make sure they were sticking to the sound words that they were taught. In the modern church today, we hear many people call themselves apostles. There are denominations that claim to be apostolic. But if we believe Revelation 22, which we'll read next week as our New Testament reading, that, that can't be true, right? We know that we are not to add to or take away from the Word of God. So if the apostles were given direct revelation from Christ himself, and that's what made them apostles, then that ended with Revelation chapter 22. So we know and we can take confidence knowing that Peter is an apostle and he's coming on the authority of Christ. He establishes himself as the author and then he establishes intended audience. The elect exiles of the dispersion. So many of these would have been ethnic Jews and some Gentiles, people who had been converted very likely by Peter himself. 
and they were strangers in a foreign land. And I, you know, I said earlier, if you don't believe that, look around a little bit. I, you know, I, I think, and I'm sure every generation has thought this, but as time progresses and, and culture gets more and more hijacked by something very opposite of Christ, um, by the prince of the power of the air, and, and there's more and more and more that, that we deal with, it does feel like we are strangers. It feels like we are out of place here in this land. So that is the way these, these believers felt in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Um, but we can praise the Lord that, that we didn't get treated as badly as they did. These were very much um, not the welcomed people in their time, you could say. So in these first two verses... Peter introduces the theme of this letter. He says to the elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we see in this opening statement, he's he's speaking to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. They're sanctified by the Spirit with the sprinkling of His blood and grace and peace be multiplied. This grace and peace is not just a picture of glorification, but it's also a prayer. A prayer that that the believers would be encouraged. Grace is a free gift. And peace, well, peace could be manifested in many ways. It, It could be politically or socially or even spiritually. But mostly we assume here that, that Peter desired for others to have that peace that, that God had imparted upon him. And if we know that peace from God, we should desire that for others as well. We should, ha- we should desire others to have that same peace. And, and that is, when I was reading through this, that was such a, such a slap-in-the-face reminder for me. Because many times when we feel comfortable with our walk with Christ, we, we kind of tend to, to fall into that holy huddle, if you will, and, and be happy with where we're at, um, and, and not so much desiring that those around us get that same peace. So when, when Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, we, we should take an example from that. In these next verses, we find hope. In the fact that God has justified his elect, is sanctifying and will glorify all those who are called according to his purpose. First point this morning is that God has justified the elect. We see that in verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, if we wanted to get more specific here in a scholarly circle, we could say that before justification, uh, you would need to say that there was election, atonement, regeneration, faith, and repentance, and those are all precursors to justification. But we'll save that topic for another day. Focus on the justification as we get started here. 
So Peter starts the section with a blessing. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's according to His great mercy. We start by being grateful, by having that grateful attitude, knowing that our God has called us, that it's of His power. We recognize that God is the author of our salvation. One of the places that that I always fall back to when I'm thinking about justification, about salvation in Christ, is is back in Ephesians chapter 2. Should have had this marked, right? Ephesians 2. I'll read verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God that no man may boast. What a a great promise that is, that we don't have to worry about doing it on our own because God has the power to do it for us. In verse 10, he says that he prepared that beforehand. So as we look through this this passage in in Ephesians 2 and, and back in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, We see that Paul and Peter are giving credit for salvation. Not to how smart men are and how great that evangelist was. Mm, The power of God is what they're giving this credit to. It's not on our our, uh, merit that we are saved. It's not on our prayer. It's not on our emotional decision. No. We see them crediting God with His grace and mercy. I'm always reminded when I'm, when I'm studying through this of the five cries of the Reformation, right? So, sola scriptura, God's word alone is truth. Sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Sola fide, we are saved through faith alone. Sola Christo, we are saved by Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, for God's glory alone. When we think about God's power and God's position in this and God's sovereignty, then we can understand our position in in the world. Do we still have responsibility? Absolutely. We do. But it's his power. He is sovereign. And we are to follow him, not the other way around. Peter says, and back in our text, there in verse three, that we are be that we are caused that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
a living hope of, of Christ and, and eternity with him. When I think about the terms of born again, I have to fall back to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, records the Pharisee Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night, wondering about this salvation. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. I'm reading in John chapter 3 here. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What an interesting passage for Jesus to tell Nicodemus that he must be born again. He must be born again by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit. That's what causes us to be born again. So where does our hope lie? It lies in Christ. It lies in his Holy Spirit. Do we believe that Jesus is the only way? That's what he says in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come through the Father except through me. Is there any merit that we can come before the throne of God other than the righteousness of Christ himself? Dear people, there is not. He is our only hope. His righteousness is our only hope. Through the resurrection of Christ, Peter says, through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. In Romans 3, and I know I'm flipping a lot, but just feel like these are important verses for us to, to chew on a little bit. Romans 3, 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that in Christ Jesus that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the, at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Y'all catch that? It's by Christ's blood that we have this opportunity, that we can have this propitiation of sin that the word calls it here. 
We know that it's by His power. We know that the wind blows where it will. That is a comforting thing to me. I know it sounds a little strange, but when you think about the wind, when you think about a a warm summer night like last night, we were in some friend's backyard and it was still and hot and then in blows this nice cool breeze and things are refreshed and you don't know where it came from or where it's going to, but you know it's there. The righteousness, the the calling of Christ is, is similar to that. It's a refreshing breeze that, we don't necessarily didn't know that it was coming, but it sure was a welcome thing. So what do we hope for? Back in our text in First Peter, he tells us in verse 4, that we are hoping to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So we are hoping for that inheritance, that that heavenly home, that inheritance, that imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. It's not a... Inheritance of earthly goods, but of heavenly glory. Hallelujah. Praise God that we have this beautiful promise of a living hope. That we have eternity to spend with our God. Who by his power we are being guarded. The mistake that we often make as humans is uh, having our own plans. And thinking that, that things have to go the way that we want them to go. And that we can do it on our own. One of the things that... I always notice um, my kids play sports, baseball in particularly. And one of the things that you always hear the kids say, you got this, man, you got this. Let's not ever start thinking we got this. Because I hate to tell you, but we don't. We don't have it. So we need the power of God. We need that power, like he tells us in Ephesians 2 and here in 1 Peter. We need his power to hold us to keep us, to guard us in that faith. If we are the ones that God, or that Peter is describing here, we trust that God is preserving us. In John chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus says, And this is the will of my Father, that I should lose nothing of all that has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What a great promise. What a great promise. If we have this faith, he will raise us up on the last day. This is the promise of the gospel, the assurance of justification. Secondly, this morning we'll talk about the promise of sanctification. Peter tells us, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes by, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul also prays for this church, for for the church in Thessalonica in a similar way. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he says, 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your heart, your whole spirit, and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This process that Peter is referring to is sanctification. These trials is, are the sanctification process that we will go through in this world. You know, we tend to be bent towards immediate gratification. We want what we want, and we want it now. Patience and perseverance are not, are not qualities that, um, that, that are, are abounding, at our home at least, not in my, in, in my particular case. If I call one of the boys, I want them to answer the phone right now. If I tell someone to do something, I want it done right now. I, I don't, I don't want to wait. I don't want to be uh, taught or, or learn more. I, I want what I want, and I want it now. Our walk with Christ is not that way. Our walk with Christ, it, it, the sanctification process, is long. We just talked about being born again. When you were born the first time, you couldn't walk, you couldn't talk, you couldn't do much of anything for yourself. Heck, most folks don't even think of someone as grown until they're in, the twi- in their 20s. So if the first birth is that way, why wouldn't we expect the second birth to be similar? Kind of similar, right? We, we start upon this path of salvation, and sanctification is learning to be a disciple of Christ. It takes time. In Matthew 28, when Jesus gave his great commission to the disciples. He told them to make disciples teaching all that he had taught them. Well, he lived with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, pretty much for three years. That's a lot of teaching. So if we were to be taught all of those things that Jesus taught, it takes time. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of heartache sometimes. Peter tells us in 6 and 7 about that, those trials, about being grieved by those trials. Does, is that true in your life? Do, are you grieved by trials? Do things always go according to your plans? Just this week, I can think of several instances. Some were just small adjustments that needed to be made, things that didn't go exactly the way I wanted them to. Some are gut-wrenching. Families that are very near and dear to us have lost children. Co-workers of mine lost their homes in the tornadoes in the panhandle this week. There There are hard things that we have to deal with in this life. And those things testing our faith. They're, they're refining our faith. Sometimes these things are easy and sometimes they're not. But one thing we can be assured of is that these trials are accomplishing the purposes of God. He tells us in Romans 8.28 that we know that all for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we trust that even when things are terrible, 
God is working that for our good and for His glory. Peter describes this as testing of our faith. When life is easy, faith is easy. But when these trials come, that is how our faith is refined. Have you, have you heard of the refiner's fire? Peter's referring to it here. Peter talks here of our faith being more precious than gold. Gold perishes, but our faith will not. So I was thinking about gold and the smelting process of, of melting that gold down and getting the boiling, the impurities off, getting skimmed off. Gold melts at just under 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I thought it was hot in South Texas this week. It was 104. A long ways from 2,000 degrees. But those that heat and pressure, that, that heat and pressure comes upon us, and that's where our true colors come out. Does the gold rise to the surface, or is there lots of impurities there? I'd hate to see what mine looked like melted. Later in this chapter, later in this letter, in chapter 4, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. These trials are not easy, but they are necessary for our sanctification. They're also necessary to test to see if we are truly in Christ. Do we really believe what we say we believe? It's not enough to simply claim it. We must truly believe it. Back in Matthew 12, Matthew records, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. These fiery trials reveal the abundance of our heart. And in James, a few pages to the left, James chapter 1 James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Brothers and sisters, we need this testing. We need this to see, to increase our faith. This heat and this pressure are good for me, right, Caleb? To fill our heart with steadfastness so that the overflow of our heart is the good things of Christ, not the weakness of our, of our own flesh. We need that testing so that we can build that steadfastness. And if you look at our confession, it's no accident that our confession has subsequent chapters on justification, adoption, sanctification, and saving faith. They go hand in hand. They build upon one another. It's a natural progression. Peter continues in this section here to describe faith. Faith is built out of this sanctification and it's grown out of this sanctification. He says in 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We, be, we love him. We believe in him. We rejoice in him. 
It says with joy that is inexpressible. Now, I don't know about you. I have to pray diligently for that joy that is inexpressible. Oftentimes, the joy that should be displayed in my heart is not there, and you don't see it in me. This week, preparing for this sermon, I had the busiest day I've had in years on Friday. I'm trying to get prepared for this. I've got executives from the company breathing down my neck on three or four different projects, and just things keep building and building and building and building. And I have to be honest with you. That joy did not come out. Sin reared its ugly head. I had a little come apart. I had to repent and ask my family to forgive me. But those are things that we have to be aware of, that we have to be diligent and and seeking is that joy that comes from knowing these truths. The joy that's inexpressible. We have much to rejoice about. We have much to have joy in. No matter how high the heat gets turned up on the refiner's fire, no matter how the trials come, we know that our faith is grown and refined and results in the salvation of our souls. Do we have that faith? Do you believe that the outcome of your faith in Christ is the salvation of your soul? If so, we can trust what Romans says, 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that brings us to our last point this morning. The culmination of our salvation is our glorification with Christ. So what is it, this hope that Peter refers to? It's our eternal home. Praise God. He is talking about the hope of heaven. And obviously, this morning, we don't have time to do a deep dive and a full exposition of what heaven will be like, but we can take a snapshot. John chapter 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you myself, that where I am, you may be also. We have the promise that we will be with Christ in eternity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, I like to think I've got a pretty good imagination. I can be a pretty big dreamer. Ask my wife. I can come up with some stuff. But it's not comparable to what God has prepared for us. It says that we can't even imagine it. And then our brother John read this morning in Revelation 21. The first five verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who also was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Can you imagine a place where there are no tears? Where there's no death, there's no mourning, there's no pain anymore. That is what we hope for. That is the hope that Peter is giving his readers, the exiles and the dispersion. The place that we long for. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says it this way. In verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What a glorious promise. The eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's something that we cannot even dream of. We can't imagine it. It's the glorification of Christ. Finally, we'll close with the words that Peter used in the last chapter of the first letter here. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to desire. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter tells us, tells the, the exiles here, there are other exiles. They're going through the same things you're going through. And they have the same promise that you have. Rest assured, dear people, that if you are called according to his purpose, he has justified you. He will continue to sanctify you. And in due time, he will glorify you. If you are, if you are sure of these promises today, praise be to God. But if you're not, I pray that today would be the day that God would reveal these promises to you, that he would peel the scales back from your eyes and that he would call you into that right relationship, that you would repent and believe in him. May peace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray.
Our great God, we are grateful for your word. Lord, we are grateful that you have gifted these apostles, that you have given your word and preserved it over the centuries that, Lord, we can trust in you. And we're grateful that that we can allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, God, that we can see in the many places how you've spoken to us. And we're grateful to you, Lord. God, I do pray right now that as, as we close this time of our service, Lord, that you would soften the hearts of the unbelievers among us. God, that you would reveal the truth of your word to them and that you would grant true faith and repentance. And God, for the believers, God, I pray that you would um, edify us, Lord, that you would help us to apply these principles, help us to live the way that Peter has described for us here, the way that your word tells us. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.